we would visually map all the hazards, look for all the safe zones, look for, okay, if it goes wrong there, then we need to get to that point. There was a lot of thought that would go into every single line that we would ski, for sure. You know, one of the teachable moments for me through that was how important it is to practice often enough that that the right things to do become automatic. Hi, this is Mike Douglas, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Don Baker. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Based in Nelson, BC, Greg Johnson and his team merged the disciplines of avalanche risk management with structural and geotechnical engineering. Find out more, explore past projects, and get in touch at sixpointeng.com. Want a new kit from Gordini? Get 10% off your next purchase plus free shipping by using the code THEAVALANCHEHOUR10 at checkout on gordini.com. Also, you can enter to win a full kit of products from Gordini by tagging at GordiniUSA and at the Avalanche Hour podcast in an Instagram post of you and your partners practicing avalanche rescue. The winner will be drawn on Jan 15th. When the stoke is high and the snowpack is low, it's always a good time of the year to dial in rescue gear and skills. Snap that photo, tag at GordiniUSA and the Avalanche Hour podcast to win yourself new gear from Gordini. And now for a word from the sponsors of this episode. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Backcountry Nav. Dave over at Backcountry Nav took a hard look at the mapping and tour planning skills people were gaining from avalanche courses. Let's face it, three days is a short amount of time to introduce and sharpen many of these skills. It takes more practice than what is covered in most recreational avalanche courses. He saw some need to improve the skills of backcountry travelers through personalized coaching and tour planning and backcountry navigation. Digital mapping tools are here to stay, and most all of us are using them. There are numerous how-to videos and webinars watching someone else show you how they do it, but this stuff can take practice. These courses are not just for skiers and splitboarders. There are snow machine-specific classes now available this winter. If you're looking for a little bit more coaching and hands-on practice using these tools in a small online classroom setting, Backcountry Nav is for you. Classes are only two to three people and take three hours on Zoom. This class will get you drawing the routes, planning your day in the mountains, and empowering your voice in the terrain selection. Take your skills beyond the blue dot, make all the pretty colors mean something, and let's look at the map together this winter. Find out more at backcountrynav.com. Support for this episode comes from Propagation Labs. Propagation Labs is a small company from Salt Lake City, Utah, that makes tools for snow and avalanche professionals to help streamline the collection, recording, and analyzing of snowpack observations. The Snowscope Probe is a digital penetrometer 
that can rapidly and accurately measure snowpack structure, then send the data to your phone in seconds. Use of the snow scope keeps observations standardized and objective, removing bias from hand hardness profiles. Reduce your uncertainty around the spatial variability of the snowpack through efficient sampling. Using the snowscope will give you a hardness profile in less than 10 seconds, allowing you to sample snowpack structure across various aspects and elevation bands, giving you a better understanding of the big picture. The snowscope has been tested in 24 countries by over 90 snow professionals, with over 7,000 snow profiles recorded. I got my hands on a snowscope last year and used it while ski guiding and forecasting. I often used it in conjunction with the manual snow pit. When comparing its results to my hand hardness profiles, I was impressed by the accuracy of the snowscope. Throughout the progression of the day, the snowscope helped me to save time through progressive sampling as I changed elevation bands or aspects, all while keeping an eye on the depth and distribution of a layer of concern. To find out more or to order a snowscope, check out propagationlabs.com or download the free snowscope app to check out the data and see the manual pit recording features it's like a digital notebook even if you don't have a snowscope probe check out this super helpful app that's free if you're intrigued don't miss the full-length episode featuring joe and garrett of propagation labs it's episode 710 well this episode i'll be speaking with a whistler legend but before i do i wanted to give a shout out to another whistler legend Wayne Flan. Wayne Flan was a 44-year veteran of Whistler Blackcomb, a 33-year member of Whistler Search and Rescue, and he published his popular avalanche blog for the past 12 years. I know I sure enjoyed checking out his blog in the morning as part of my daily process. Sure, much of it was focused on the Sea to Sky Corridor, which is a long way from my home, but his beautiful photography and links to avalanche stories around the world were always worth a visit. Where else would one find links to articles about avalanches in the Himalaya, the Andes, or the Tatra Mountains? What other site would have scientific papers on weather patterns posted alongside clips of people sending it on a snowmobile? I never knew Wayne, but I can only imagine his passion for the snow and the avalanche world was an extension of his passion for life in general. I can only imagine how much he will be missed by his family, the Whistler community, and his friends across the country. Rest in peace, Wayne and thank you for all you did for the community. The snow is starting to pile up here in southern BC and the stoke levels are high. Speaking of stoked individuals, I have a beauty of a conversation for you all today with none other than the legendary godfather of free skiing, Mike Douglas. Mike is one of the most influential skiers of all time. He's credited with developing the first high-performance twin-tip ski and was the ringleader of a crew known as the New Canadian Air Force. In my eyes, Mike and his friends J.P. Eau Claire, J.F. Cousson, Vincent Dorian, and Shane Zox made skiing cool again in the late 90s, at a time when skis were straight and pencil 360s were the norm. They took the style and flair of snowboarding and brought it to skiing, turning the whole ski industry upside down in the process. Naturally, they took their big air and new tricks and their cameras into the backcountry, developing fat twin-tip skis and a whole new way of approaching backcountry terrain in the process. Needless to say, the skis and the ski films were immensely popular, and backcountry use has steadily increased ever since. Mike Douglas is a pro skier, a filmmaker, an environmental advocate, and a husband and dad. He's been in over 50 ski films, produced and directed more than a dozen films from the other side of the camera, 
and he's a former board chair for the Protect Our Winters Canada. Well, without any further ado, let's drop in for this conversation with Mike Douglas. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm uh, really pleased to be joined here today by the godfather, Mike Douglas. Uh, needs no introduction to uh, anybody that grew up skiing in North America in the 80s and 90s. But uh, Mike, maybe you can uh, give us a little bit of your background. And uh, thanks so much for joining us here. No, oh, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's a, it's an honor. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up like I think a lot of people. I was just a, a kid that discovered skiing a little bit late, uh, 10 years old on a grade five school trip. And uh, I grew up on Vancouver Island, so Mount Washington was our sort of only ski area. Um, well, I guess there was a couple back then. It's the only one now in that in that area. Um, but I just once once I went skiing, I, I was hooked, and and that's all I could think about. And all through high school, I just you know skied as much as possible. And one day, dreamed of living in the mountains, and and sort of took a gap year from school and and made that happen in 1988. And uh, moved to Whistler for a season and sort of <laughs> didn't really look back. I actually went back to school for a short period of time, but but then that that was it. I was I was hooked. So um, started competing in moguls. Uh, I you know when I when I moved to Whistler, I, I was I would consider myself a free skier. I just liked all kinds of skiing. I, I wasn't you know competitive or anything like that. But I just wanted to get the full experience. So did mogul comps and some races and, you know, skied the steeps and jumped and did all that stuff. And, and I ended up doing pretty well in the moguls. So I, I, and actually got offered a spot on the BC mogul team the next year. And so I decided to pursue that for a little while and made it to the national team and competed on the world cup for a bit. And then almost made the Olympics. I was first alternate in 94, but an, an injury shortly after that sort of, uh, sent me back to evaluate where things were going. And I, I ended up going to coaching and coach moguls and got a job with the national team shortly after. And then, uh, and then we had these exciting young guys on the, on the team who wanted to do snowboard style tricks on skis. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So we started doing that on our days off. And next thing you know, we got a bunch of attention and drew up a design for a twin tip ski and man, the rest is history. That kind of sent everything to another level. Yeah, so just kind of diving into that a little bit here, that's sort of referring to the new Canadian Air Forces, <clears throat> as you guys were known back in those days. So can you talk a little bit about some of the characters that were involved in those days? On on the Whistler side, so th there was sort of like two sides to it in those days for us. There was there was uh, Shane Zox and myself were the primary characters in the Whistler area that were into this. And Shane was was one of my best buddies back then, and, and we skied together all the time. Um, but then there was also this group of, of Quebec skiers, uh, you know, JP Eau Claire, JF Cousin, Vincent Dorian, who were sort of buzzing in, in Quebec as well around the same thing. And, and we all came together through the national development ski team for moguls. So I was a coach and the others were all athletes in the program. So what would happen is we'd go to our serious mogul training and then, on days off or after we were done training, we would all head to the snowboard park or the nearest big jump and we would like try stuff. And, uh, it was, it was awesome. It was just so much excitement because, you know, keep in mind back then we saw this 
this buzz happening in snowboarding like skiing was sort of sliding down i mean it was like it became an old person sport at that point and and not that many young people were 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 hyped on skiing and but we were skiers and we loved the energy coming from snowboarding but we're like well why can't we do that kind of stuff on skis and so that's exactly what we tried to do yeah no kidding you really can even if you look at the imagery from that era it's like such a change in the whole vibe of of what you guys were putting out and it, just the amount of style you're putting into the air as well. You know, it wasn't, uh, it was a real departure from some of the aerials stuff or even what was going on with mogul skiing it must've been super fun back in those days. Yeah. I mean, we, we were all mogul skiers. We love mogul skiing, but we felt like it was, it was kind of stagnant, you know, like the tricks were very gymnastics inspired. They were, you, you wanted to keep your legs straight and everything was straight and, positions were you know there there was no flow to it it was sort of like you get the position and you get the points and then you you land with your poles square and all these types of things and it was when we saw snowboarding they like they basically just threw the rule book out and we're like well we're just going to do it do it how it feels good and we we're like that that's that's what we want to do we want to just like dream up stuff and you know we used to have this thing we called a huck doll it was a little like spider-man action figure that was you know i don't know 10 centimeters tall and you could manipulate the arms and the legs and put it into different positions and that's how we figured out how to do a lot of tricks because you know we were doing stuff that that we had no reference on on how to do so we would like you know just sort of like walk through the physics of a trick we wanted to try with that and be like oh yeah you can like if you rotate this way you can come around to your feet and and then we kind of would take it to, to snow from there. Man, that's unreal. When you think about kids these days growing up, learning a trick, like they can go onto YouTube or Instagram or something and, and see a hundred different people doing a trick and more or less learn it like in a visual sense. And, um, you know, you kind of build like the precursor to muscle memory in a way by watching other people doing it. Whereas you guys haven't, hadn't, had anybody even show you that it was possible so that's a very interesting way of, of doing it with the little huck doll for sure yeah it was uh, it was exciting because i mean we would have to do often do something many many times before we figured it out and i mean the the bad part is part is we'd crash a lot the good part is the jumps were really small back then so now like you go watch watch these guys that are winning the x games and stuff and and they're trying a new trick and they stomp it their chances of stomping it on the first try even though it's completely insane are really high because they have all that precursor to it and and they just they they know the feelings and all that stuff so we we had to learn those feelings from scratch which was which was tough but also like really exciting because when you actually figured out something and everybody just on the sidelines stopped and went whoa like we've never seen that before that was that was pretty cool so did the filming start there? Like, are you guys filming each other so you could watch it back afterwards and kind of figure out exactly what you had done and, and try to repeat it or so, you know, like riff off each other or whatever? Well, for me personally, the filming started like almost when I started skiing because I loved skiing so much that by taking photos, which it was in the beginning, I mean, I, I made it, I, my buddy and I made a ski movie in grade 11 so that would have been like 85, 86 season. Um, but but we did that to preserve the memories of the winter. 
so that all summer we could go and watch and look at the photos and like, and, and, and so that it made the summer go by faster for us. So that, that was really the motivation in the beginning. And then, you know, when the whole, I kind of left that behind, I guess, through my mogul career, like our coaches are of course videoing us and it's for training purposes and whatever. But, um, but with the new Canadian air force, we started videoing each other, uh, actually to try and get the twin tip scheme idea off the ground. So we actually made a promo film, um, that was like 10 minutes long as sort of a plea to the ski industry to help us make this ski that, that we sort of dreamed up. And that was so you guys could start landing backwards and sort of increase the opportunity for new trick development, I guess. eh? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were, we were doing everything on mogul skis. So the, the evolving to a twin tip and a wider ski, a ski with more carving profile, you know, a more modern style ski was, was natural. And then, you know, once we had that ski, it was a tough sell on the industry, but once we had the ski, you know, everything started changing real quick. Cause we, we just had all this new possibility. Man, no kidding. So maybe talk about that time. That was the Solomon 1080, which is more or less been credited as the first like modern day twin tip take us through coming up with that whole design and and then pitching it as you were just alluding to well the funny thing is it it, it actually <laughs> something negative happened that led to that happening which was my my ski sponsor at the time so i was a sponsored mogul skier even though i was a coach i was still filming how-to videos especially in japan you know japan was kind of crazy for moguls back in the 80s and 90s and so you know, I would go to Japan several times a year and do demos and had, you know, a bit of celebrity status over there. But in the late nineties, um, the industry, the ski industry in Japan, their, their economy had kind of fallen apart and ski industry was falling off a bit of a cliff. And, and my ski sponsor at the time, Kanaisal told me that, uh, you know, we're not gonna be able to renew your contract this year. And so I was like, Oh boy, that's not good. I mean, they were super nice about it. They gave me six months notice. So it gave me enough time to like go shopping around and see what I could come up with. But in the meantime, you know, I met with uh, a good friend of mine, Steve Faring, who was the the mogul coach for the Japanese ski team. And he said, you know, I've got a pretty tight contact at Solomon. They're really looking for something new to kind of like pump some life into the ski industry. And I was like, wow, we're doing all this crazy stuff that seems people seem to be pretty hyped on and we could definitely use a new ski. And he's like, let's, you know, like, well, come up with a plan, like to make some designs. Let's, let's, let's get a plan together. So he spent the next about three months after that, putting together this little demo video. And then Steve took it and shopped it around to the, to the ski industry, he took it to the top nine brands in the world at the time. Um, and pretty much got laughed off the block. Like uh, people were like, you, you guys have no idea what you're doing. This is never going to work. And I mean, we were, we were pretty disheartened. Um, it, it, after about two months, we, you know, I think we had seven people just said flat out, no Roz and y'all kind of came in and was like, yeah, um, we don't really think your ski idea is very good, but we think you guys are good skiers. We'll sponsor you. Uh, which, which was not the goal. And then Solomon was like, well, we're kind of interested, but, uh, who knows? And then nobody called for a long time. So ski season was starting and I was, I was pretty down to be honest, because I hadn't secured a ski sponsor. I hadn't got this idea that I thought was good off the ground and the snow was on the ground. I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll just keep coaching. And, um, I got a call from, from a guy named, uh, Guy Bertillon, nicknamed Mingo from Solomon and he was working in Canada out of Quebec. And he said, don't give up. 
this, I think this is going to work. I think there's some real interest in Psalm and there's a few of us in the company that are pushing it hard. Just bear with us. And so sure enough, uh, I want to say only two weeks after that call came in, uh, we got a call and Solomon said, we want to work with you guys. We want to try and create this ski. And I, and the funny thing is I said, okay, well, cool. I had, I had drawn up like specs on the ski and what I thought it should be. And Solomon said, Hey, can you, well, can you send us your specs? And I'm like, well, no, not until we sign a contract. Like we, we gotta, we, we gotta formalize this first before we go anywhere. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I think we know what you want anyway. <laughs> and so they come back about a month later before we still had, hadn't signed a contract yet. And they said, um, how about these? And, and I don't know if you remember, if anyone out there remembers, but the, the Solomon made a, a ski called an axe cleaver, which was like a hyper carver. It, it had an absurd side cut, super short. I think it was a 130 or 140 centimeters. And they basically gave us that with the turned up tail. Wow. Not quite what you had in mind. No, we were like, uh, you guys actually really don't know. So good news about that was it kind of fast tracked the contract um, process. And, and then we sort of like talked to them and turned over the the designs and they turned it around uh, in 30 days. We had that first 1080 and the first proto was actually really good. And that was the yellow ski. We had no idea what they were going to do graphically, but they did that. And it was just like, we, we all, I remember opening the box and we were all like, wow, it's the coolest thing we've ever seen, you know? And, and then from there it was just like, like full speed ahead. That's an amazing story. And you've been with Solomon ever since, I believe. Hey. Yeah. I've been with Solomon ever since. Yeah. It's now, geez, what year are we now? Like 20, hang on. It's almost 30 years. It's. It's coming up there. Yeah. It's, it's wild. It was 97 until now. So it's at 26 years or something. So So that prototyping process is something that you've probably done quite a few times now with them. Is that something that you've seen kind of change over, over time? You know, it, it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, there's certain products that, that I have my fingerprints all over. Um, and there are products that I, I don't touch or maybe I test them just before they're almost done or whatever like that. So I mean, skis that I've, I've, I've really worked hard on are, are, were the 1080, the pocket rocket, um, the rocker two, a little bit of the QST, the QST 99 was a ski I really liked and worked on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it kind of, it kind of comes and goes and it, it depends on where, where the vibes are at, but, um, but yeah, it's really fun. It is really fun to especially in those early days to dream up like a new direction with a ski and, and then see it come to life. And then, and then it's, you know, it's even better when you see it all over the Hills and, and realize that it's, it's actually selling and, and doing well. Oh man, it must've been inspiring in a way because that, that original 1080 and then the pocket rocket follower, both like iconic skis. And you, you couldn't go to a ski hill in North America without seeing them in the lift line. That alone must be pretty gratifying. Well, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the 1080 was one of the top selling skis of all time and the pocket rocket was, did very, very well too. So that was cool. That, those were, those were fun years, you know, those were kind of the rock star years when, when, uh, you know, we, we, everywhere we went, there was, there was a lot of hype and excitement and, uh, it was, it was good. And it was before social media and all that too. So it was, it was a different, feeling back then and and i feel like you know the world moved a little bit slower back then and and so 
which made things last longer. Yes, yeah, so true. Yeah, you put out a handful of of ski movie segments that you'd work all season on, and then everybody had to wait till the fall to see them. You know, there was no leaking on Instagram or whatever, and so. And then when that would come out, you know, people would talk about it for months afterward. And, and so, I mean, maybe I'm being just being nostalgic, but it was it was kind of nice to have that little bit slower pace and a little bit more patience in, in the world and the way everything worked. Oh, I could totally agree from more from the outside perspective, but, you know, as a as a kid and then as a young adult waiting for that, you know, fresh batch of ski films to come out every fall and sort of help build the excitement for the coming ski season. It was just part of this like annual cycle. So talking about developing the skis there, you obviously had a very specific idea in mind with the, the 1080 then talk maybe a little bit about your vision with the pocket rocket. Cause that, uh, that wider platform really helped you guys take a lot of those tricks into the deeper power, right? You know, I, I've been, I'd been living in Whistler at that point for a decade, more than a decade of my life. And, and so and I was also the oldest member of the crew. I think I was 28, 29 when we did the pocket rocket. So, you know, my back was a little bit more sore than maybe some of the younger guys. And and the, the whole idea of, of skiing in the park was less appealing. It was also the time in my life where I started getting into backcountry skiing. I got a snowmobile and I was able to, to you know, to, to start accessing more powder and skiing soft snow. And And right away I was like, okay, well, we need to let's come up with a, a ski that, that can do this. And so, um, you know, I pitched that idea to the crew. They were all over it because keep in mind the 1080 is flying off the shelf. So anything even related to that at that time was, was welcome. And so I said, well, let's make one of these for powder. And the key, the key thing is that it has to be light and it, it coincided perfectly with this new technology Solomon had been working on called space frame where they were able to reduce the the amount of material in the top sheets that just took the whole weight of the ski down. Um, I mean, one of the coolest things was they, they sent me a pair of protos and um, just as kind of a joke or try to try something that the ski designer in, in France and the factory threw a layer of tinfoil on it. And then, and then I think the first one I had was like tinfoil, but with green, and then he just like pressed it with like this waffle kind of thing. And we were like, wow, that looks so cool. You know, <laughs> that was your top sheet was like a shiny waffle green. Yeah. Cause it was just a proto, right? So like most protos you see these days, they just have white top sheets. Like they don't, they often don't say anything. They have no description because they, they don't, you know, the graphics are like the last thing that gets done, but this guy did it just for fun. And, um, I was like, wow, that looks really cool. And so, you know, as we developed the ski, you know, they were trying different graphics and all this stuff. And I'm like, let's just do that tinfoil waffle thing. Cause that looks awesome. And, but in, we, you know, and he presented a few different colors of it and we we're like, okay, the blue looks the coolest. And so there you go. There's the story behind the no ski and the way it looked. That was that iconic baby blue color. Yeah. Yeah. It was a quite a light ski too for its time. When you think about what was available like shortly after that, like within the say five years to follow, like the pocket rocket was definitely like the go-to backcountry twin tip touring ski. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a li- lightweight. That was like one of the key factors in development of that ski. And, and we were able to do that because 
you know, as I said, that Solomon space frame technology, but also because monocoque skis were the thing back then. So that's like a cap construction of a ski versus wood laminate. And it's funny how the monocoque became so uncool, you know, a decade after that, that you couldn't even make it. No one would buy them. Um, but I still actually, I still believe it's a more superior way to make skis because you, you don't have to fill the core of the ski with anything. I mean, we used to just put this lightweight foam in there and, um, and, and, you know, you could keep your skis super light with that because all the construction was in the cap design. So I kind of miss those little monocoque skis actually. So taking those skis into the backcountry, can you talk to me a little bit about like your, you know, your whole process there? Were you out there just having fun? Were you out there filming um, in terms of, you know, you're developing awareness of like the avalanche hazard being that this is an avalanche podcast and all. Um, talk to me about that kind of entrance into the backcountry and bringing your, your buddies with you too. Yeah. So, I mean, if I back up to when I was a kid, my buddies and I, we were skiing beyond outside the boundary, um, you know, from teenage years, no gear, no transceiver, no shovel, no backpack, no nothing. And I, I mean, I look back at those days and I'm just like, Oh man, how, how did we survive that? And I think one of the ways we actually survived it is, is we grew up skiing on Vancouver Island, which has this heavy coastal snowpack, you know, a lot of water density and, and, and it was a pretty bomber snowpack, um, compared to, to most places. And I think that's, that's why we actually survived. But, you know, as, as, um, as the 1080 and pocket rocket got developed by then we were definitely wearing avalanche transceivers. We had shovels and probes and we would practice. I want to say back then we were practicing like you would practice if you go heli skiing or snowcat skiing where, you know, once or twice a year we would run through a little scenario or whatever. So everyone knew how to use their stuff. But to be honest, back then when we would access the backcountry on our snowmobiles and, and keep in mind, this is, like the, the right as that was starting too. So the, like there was hardly anybody out there. I mean, you, you'd be breaking trail on these 600 CC snowmobiles for hours or days to get into some of these spots. But at that time we were just looking for jumps. So if there was any worry about avalanche danger, we would just go find a jump zone that we felt like was safe. And so I want to say like for, for at least those first five years out there, my primary motivation was just jumping. Uh, I wasn't skiing big lines or you're finding an area with not too much exposure to bigger terrain and building a big booter. Yeah. So a lot of rolly terrain that had no overhead exposure and, and, you know, the, the biggest hazard might be the landing of the jump. Um, you know, and if you were worried at all, like, you know, fortunately coastal snowpack once again but if we were worried you know we'd get someone to hit the jump and just do a straight jump where they they knew that you know they could get out of there quick and pop that landing if it was going to pop and if it didn't then okay so so it was we were pretty cautious back then like when i think of myself and i look at what the way people push nowadays i mean we were we were taking much less objective risk for sure in those days and, and we had much less experience and much less know-how when it came to rescuing and scenarios, but we were also taking much less risk. Maybe as an industry, collectively, we all had a lot less experience too. <clears throat> you know, when you look at ski films and stuff from the era, like it was kind of really just starting to get into the backcountry. And when I think about some of the first backcountry skiing I saw in film, it was 
you know, Warren Miller movies and that, and that was all guided skiing up at Mike Wigley. So you guys were really taking it into the backcountry on your own terms. So it's interesting to hear how you manage that hazard by, you know, minimizing your exposure to bigger terrain and that sort of thing. Stepping out incrementally as you gain confidence, I guess. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, and it all evolves. Right. So, you know, I was always out there filming. We always had a film crew with us. So that was another thing that I think people don't always realize is that you see one person on, on the slope with the film crew or whatever, but usually, and we were almost always just one person on slope at a time. And with, you know, three, four five, six people standing around the scene, ready to go if, if something happens. So it's actually, you know, people say, oh, you're filming and it's putting yourself at risk, but it's actually one of the safest ways to ski the backcountry because we're always just one person on slope and we usually have someone at the top and we have people in safe zones around the bottom. And, and, uh, you know, when we, when we have had incidents, we've been able to activate very quickly, fortunately. Um, but it's also interesting yeah, capacity to response pretty good. Yeah. It's also interesting to look at the evolution of the way, uh, backcountry safety has evolved from a, a film perspective over the past 20 years. Um, you know, in the beginning, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think we had that many avalanches. Like I said, we, it was so jump focused for a long time that that kept us off a lot of the big hazard hazardous terrain. But if there was an avalanche in someone's small line, like you would show it, it was like, whoa, check this out. It's so badass, right? And then, and then there was a short time where we didn't show it if it happened because, you know, there was talk about, oh, these guys are glorifying, you know, we, we got started getting a bad reputation as pro skiers. Like, look at what they're doing. They're glorifying avalanches and, you know, look at us outrunning them and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I guess that is pretty bad luck. So then we stopped showing it. And then I, I would say that lasted just for a few years. And then, and then more recently, like over the last decade, it's been, you know, much more like if it happens, like we'll often make like a spinoff or make that part of the story and, and try to learn something from, from that. Like what, where, how did this go wrong and what, you know, what could we have done better? That's it definitely seems to be an observable shift. Eh? There's more of an educational element to it. I was going to ask you about that, actually, if you thought that, is there like a role in ski media in avalanche education? Like a lot of these uh, films are produced particularly for entertainment purposes, really. Um, but now, you, like you said, you do see that shift to like talking about uh, avalanches and, and debriefing an incident that happens on film and um you know, showing the search phase and the, you know, whatever may be involved there. Like, do you see that the media has a role to play there or does that depend on the individual company and like their kind of ethos? Oh, definitely. I, I think there's a, there's a role to play in, in the media. I mean, we're the, uh, the ski media is the primary drivers for a lot of people getting out there and discovering this type of stuff. We're the hype machine, right? So there is a responsibility that comes with that uh, from my perspective. And, and I think that, that the industry as a whole has really responded to that over the last decade. Um, you know, and I, and I would, I'll point immediately to Cody Townsend's 50 project. And I, I mean, it's, if you want ski action, air quote ski action, Cody's project's probably the worst thing that you could watch on the internet. Yet it's probably the most popular series right now because Cody takes you into these situations that, that he's in trying to ski these wild lines. And, and, 
a lot of time, you know, he's up there and him and Bjarne are trying to make a decision and what, what are we going to do here? And, and, and they turn back a lot. And I think there's a relatable, something relatable within all that, that really people really identify with. And I think that's really cool because it, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the curtains have come down and it's like, you can kind of look at the thought process and you can see the decisions that are made. And, and, and it also allows the viewer to, to put themselves in that situation and go, okay, well, what would I have done? And I think, you know, as, as more and more of these avalanche incidents get talked about, whether the outcome is good or bad, I, I, I often, you know, my friends and I will, will look at, you know, a report from an incident and go, okay, what would we have done in that situation? Would we have been in the same place? Would we have, you know, and you, and you take every time you, you see something like that, you read about that, or even, even run scenarios, uh, yourself, you, you're learning and you're, you're, it's helping the decision-making process down the line. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think as humans, we really learn from other people's experience and, you know, whether that's case studies or whatever. And I really think it's awesome that Cody's not sugarcoating it. I mean, anybody that's done ski mountaineering knows there's a, a big element of like grunting your way up the the feature to get to the top. There's a ton of decision-making and a bit of Sufferfest involved. And he's done an awesome job of of showing all that and uh, and not just like kind of glorifying the final descent because that'd be, be a pretty incomplete story, I think. When you guys were getting into the backcountry and you started to bite off like bigger pieces of terrain and take, you know, there was a transition that went from like hitting a backcountry booter to what we see now where people are skiing pretty consequential lines and throwing these tricks into the line. Like, how did that transition go? And like, were you starting to like bring guides along with you to to work on these bigger pieces of terrain? Or did that just kind of happen naturally as your, you know, familiarity and skill level increased in your backcountry travel? Yeah, you you, you kind of nailed it. Like as as we started to push the tricks into the more natural terrain, we got on bigger terrain. We we I think it was just a natural process. We all of a sudden realized like, okay, consequences are greater. Um, we need we need expertise. We need additional eyes. We need someone to bounce. You know, is ideas off. Like, is how does this slope look? We want someone with a rescue kit with eyes on every time someone's on that slope. Um, you know, in the glory days, we would often have a helicopter sitting there too. I mean, it was like from a safety perspective for backcountry ski, you've got a mountain guide standing there watching you with eyes on, and you've got a helicopter parked at the bottom of the slope. Like, <laughs> it was uh, it was actually much, I, I think, safer in um in general than than a lot of people realize and also keep in mind like one of the big differences is that we were often skiing terrain that's so steep that it sort of self flushes you know like you yes you could have a slab rip at the bottom of a spine line but chances are that slab's not going to be like a meter and a half it might be 40 centimeters um because that that you know during the storm that slope is flushing constantly so you know, things like that made it a little bit safer. I actually get a lot more nervous now skiing mellower terrain, um, you know, big open bowls and, and mellow convex rolls, you know, like 32 degrees. And I'm like, Oh, 
I don't like this. <laughs> so yeah, the spot where the persistent weak layer gets to hang out. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so that was another thing that we kind of had going for us um, as as you push to this terrain. Now, obviously, th- there's still hazard in terms of like you fall and you crash over rocks or go off a cliff or you you get swept or whatever into some trees. There's there's always those those hazards, but you know, we, we would, we would certainly, especially as we, we learned over the years, we would, we would stop, you know, we, we would almost never ski something just from the top. We would come in at the bottom, whether that was tour in or go look from the bottom and and hike up the ridge or take the heli or whatever. We'd always go in at the bottom and we would, we would visually map all the hazards, look for all the safe zones, look for, okay, if it goes wrong there, then, then we need to get to that point. That's the safe, that little spine, that's the safe spine. It's going to split on that or whatever, you know? So there was a lot of thought that, that would go into every single line that we would ski for sure. It seems to me like line scoping and recognition is like a pretty unique skill for, for a pro skier or like a competition skier, like a free ride world tour athlete or something like that. And that's maybe something that you know, recreational ski tours could really learn from your segment to the industry. And I was wondering if that's something that you ever talked to about with, uh, say young up and coming free riders in the Whistler area. Cause surely you're looked at as like, a well, you're the godfather, man. <laughs> I'm sure people are asking you for advice on how to get into it. And you probably see lots of, uh, groms out there filming and, um, putting their edits out on Instagram. So is that the kind of stuff that you talk to you about with these guys and girls? Oh, for sure. And, um, you know, there's a couple of things we do, like, you know, like you said, I've been with Solomon for a long time and we started talking about this stuff quite seriously, probably about a decade ago now where we looked at our role, you know, as a, as a, as a professional free ski team and, 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 you know, media producers, and we're selling this product so you can access the mountains easier with skins and all these type of things. Like how can we help make people safer. And so Solomon's done quite a few things over the years. They started with a thing called Mountain Academy, which was a really comprehensive look at um, an online course, basically, on about avalanche safety and avalanche awareness and, and you know, all the things to look for. It was really quite well done. It was, it was, it was quite comprehensive. We followed that up with a, um, with a how-to series, a backcountry how-to, where we go from everything from cutting your skins to uh, you know, skinning techniques to, uh, layering to, uh, backcountry safety, how to do an avalanche scenario, how to, you know, the, the, the things to look for on a slope where the hazards are, you know, near, near the rocks, like for the convex rolls, the cornices, like all these type of things. Um, and that stuff's on YouTube for free now, but we also, uh, do a, a thing called the, um, the mountain Academy, um, or pardon me, the mountain collective where we get together once or twice a year and one, at least one or two of the days of our, you know, five days together will be focused completely on safety and, and avalanche, um, rescue scenarios. So we'll do everything, man. We've done, you know, we've, we definitely run some pretty wild scenarios. Um, they've gotten more and more complex over the years where we'll, I think one of the last ones we did that I can remember was, you know, we had like five people involved. One person was hanging in a tree. Like one was on a halfway down a cliff where it had to be rope access. Like it would, they would get pretty wild. And we would, we not only like, you know, have to dig them out, but then we would have, 
um, you know, once the, the, the dummy was recovered, a person would then come in and they would be in, you know, in various state of injuries and we would have to actually evacuate, stabilize them and evacuate them off the hill and get them to the safe point or whatever. So, um, so that was really good. And, and what's kind of cool is like for the up and coming members of the team, you know, we've got a bunch of, you know, like 17, 18, 19 year olds that are, that are on the team, they get to come into that and be mentored by the older people and, and the mountain guides involved in the program. And, and, you know, it's, it's just created a much more knowledgeable group of pros. And, and I know that Solomon's not unique in doing that. I know TGR does that every year with their whole roster. They bring everybody to Jackson to go through safety training. And, and the, the, the nice thing is that, that, you know, we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing uh, much better uh, safety scenarios happening in the backcountry with our crews. And, and, you know, it makes me realize that we kind of got lucky back in the old days because i've been through some things just in the last three or four years that i i you know were were some of the wilder um scenarios i've been involved with and and fortunately we were you know we were well prepared enough that they that they all turned out okay sounds like a a pretty good setup for introducing new folks to the sport Do do you see uh a change in the baseline level of awareness that say one of these 17 18 year old kids might join the team with like do you think high school age kids are getting more uh information on avalanche safety and coming in with a better awareness than they were say 10 15 years ago yeah for sure i mean it it, i think that that it is it is part of of the sport it's just something that you need to do now like it's not you know it's it's not like it's not this side thing anymore. It's like, you want to be a pro skier? Well, you're going to have to do this and you're going to have to get this training and this equipment. And you're going to like, there's all these things that you need to do. And I think that that's just kind of part of, of how it is now. And I, you know, when I, like I said, I go back to my teenage years and I'm out washed. I mean, we were skiing some pretty gnarly stuff with nothing. I mean, I'm so thankful nothing ever went wrong for us, but boy, it really could have. It's, it's kind of terrifying to look back actually now. Well, it's a good thing we're past the glorification stage and now into the just general, like, it's almost like, uh, joining a ski patrol or becoming a guide or something by the sounds of it. You guys have that, uh, series of prerequisites and a, a training flow and feel like you'd probably be pretty safe skiing with any of those folks there, at least well, well equipped for a response. Yeah. And, and you know, what's nice too, um, is that, you know, as you probably, you see in your area, same as here, I mean, backcountry usage is up massively especially in the last five years, it's, it's, I mean, the, the, the black comb spearhead skin track looks like a highway some mornings. It's just, you can't even find a place to put your skins on. But then the nice thing is that I think the accident rate, I mean, I could be wrong here, but I think it's about the same as it, as it ever was. And, and the interesting thing to me is that when you look at the serious accidents, most of them are happening with very experienced people. Um, they're not, it's not the noobs out there that are making mistakes. Um, I, I find that because of this education element that's getting driven into people, especially when they get into it, it's like, okay, we're well, going to need this equipment. You need to learn how to use it. They're, they're actually quite cautious, uh, when people first go out, at least that's what I'm seeing anecdotally around here is that the ones that are going and pushing and going, you know, to the third 
second or third or fourth ridge back aren't the newbies. They're doing the first ridge, maybe the second. Um, but where the hazard is, is often the deeper you go, right? And, you, and the consequences become more severe. So um, I feel like people are are learning and they're taking it seriously. And, and you know, that's that's good for everybody because it shows that that you can do this sport and and do it safely if you have your head on straight. Yeah. I mean, there's so much available information that, um, it's harder and harder to go out into the backcountry with no idea what the avalanche hazard is. And I think that like, it's probably a good, uh, aside to point out how well here in Canada, avalanche Canada has been doing with publicizing, uh, the special public avalanche warnings when things are really gnarly and they, they get it on CBC and all the, the main news sources. And, you know, I don't know, you almost get kind of like feel guilty going into the backcountry when it, when there's a spawn, because, you know, it's been so well publicized how, how, uh, hazardous things are at the time. Um, so I think there's very few people that go out into the backcountry in those instances without having any idea of how, how hazardous things are. So yeah, at least that availability of information seems to be keeping people safer. And as you alluded to, I don't think that the, uh, fatality rate has increased in Canada, despite the fact that backcountry use is completely skyrocketed, as you said. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Avalanche Canada and what they've been able to do. I think that the you know it's it's obvious that is saving lives 100. percent I mean that that information was never available before, and people, especially you know in that newbie crowd, um, you know there people are used to saying you know in in three weeks I'm gonna go do this traverse or I've got the hut booked or whatever. In their world, and you're you know you're city person you don't get stopped because it's raining or whatever. Whereas like in our world, you know, the, the, the core people here listening are be like, well, why would you go out there? Like y'all, we all knew it was going to be hazardous, the high winds and all this stuff, but they don't think like that. And so that information by, by Avalanche Canada sort of jamming it down through people's throats, uh, it, it really does help because, you know, they'll often, there's at least one person in the group that saw that and will say, Hey, wait a sec. They they said the avalanche rating was extreme. Like maybe we shouldn't go. And you know, that saves lives. It's so true. Look at last year. We had a particularly challenging, deep, persistent weak layer all across the entire province of BC and into Alberta. And the number of fatalities was pretty much average, despite having a pretty tricky year. So yeah, good job, Avalanche Canada. You heard it here, folks. Avalanche Canada is awesome. Anyway, that's an aside. I appreciate you talking about that because that's something I've I've found super interesting um just watching the progression of of tricks and stuff in the backcountry and then uh wondering about how you guys were managing the hazards so thanks for kind of talking about that a little bit while we're on the subject of kind of you know your your past and your career and some of the people that you were working with i, I wanted to ask you about jp eau claire because to me as a kid growing up in western canada he was right alongside you epitomizing you know that progression from you know, park rat on the East coast to, uh, to taking the tricks into Whistler park and then into the backcountry, And, and, you know, it was clear he developed like a real passion for mountaineering too. And so I was just wondering if you talk about him and, and his legacy and kind of, you know, any observations you had from, uh, from watching that all go down. Yeah. I mean, JP was, was one of those one in a million people that just had this infectious energy about him and, uh, and, and was, you know, a creative genius, whether it was inventing tricks or, or doing some kind of art or working on a ski movie segment that he would put like, you know, six months of his time into, um, 
he, he, he's an amazing, amazing person. And, um, you know, I, I think one thing that, that happens and, and one of the wonderful things about skiing is that you can evolve through it, through your life. There's not one way to do skiing. I mean, park skiing is, is a part of skiing for some people. It's often something that teenagers love to do or early twenties, but, but as a skier, there are so many different ways, whether you, you want to get into masters racing or powder skiing or backcountry touring or big mountain skiing or mountaineering, or, I mean, it's, there's myriad ways to, to experience the sport. And it's one of the wonderful things about it. We can evolve and, and, and change through our lives and keep it fresh and exciting. And, you know, JP, he came from the same place I did. He was a mogul skier. He, he got into the jumping. He was, you know, regarded as the best in the world at one point and that stuff turned his, his eye to being creative in skiing for a while, making amazing movie segments. And then he kind of evolved toward the mountaineering side. He got seduced. He, he ended up living in, in Europe for, for a few years and, and got seduced into the Chamonix scene. And I mean, that's a, a whole other kind of, thing over there that that happens and i and i mean i say this uh it was only a few hours ago that i found out that tough Henri uh fell to his death in south america um you know he was a chamonix powerhouse um i hadn't heard that and you had, i know yeah, exactly who you mean he is wow yeah, yeah that's yeah shocking. i just heard that this morning so and and when jp started to get pulled into that sham scene and he started skiing with Andreas Franzen, who was, you know, right on the cutting edge of what was possible on skis in terms of steeps and big mountains. Um, I, I definitely started to get nervous for him at, in those times, because I know that the evolution in that game, the, the margin for error just gets so small when you're at the sharp, sharp end and Chamonix is the sharp end. And, and the more time I saw him spending there and, and skiing with Andreas, I, I definitely grew concerned that 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 is a tough road to to keep the car on the on the on the asphalt on. And um, yeah, I mean it was incredibly tragic um, to lose JP, and uh, especially with a young family at home and. Um, but, you know, and I, I, these are the situations, you know, the situation where JP and Andreas, they got avalanched off a big line in South America. And, you know, I've read the reports. I've, I've sat down for hours with Bjarne Salen, who was with them and witnessed the whole thing. And, and all lights were green. You know, these guys had as much experience as anyone. All lights were green. I don't know. Like, I look at that situation and I go, I don't know what they could have done i mean sometimes it's uh it's the mountains and um yeah absolutely from the outside people could say oh they're you know being reckless or whatever but and once you dig into the details it sounds like they're being as prudent as they could be while still acknowledging that like it's an inherently dangerous thing that we do and um i suppose at some point you make your peace with that yeah yeah it's always always hard and it certainly looked like uh jp was going to he was almost like studying for that or going to school for it in a sense like his time spent in Chamonix is like pretty well documented and you know just it was fascinating as like a bystander to see all the time and work he was putting into learning like the hard skills of that whether it be like the rope work or 
you know, working with your ice axe and your crampons or all of that stuff, like based on his stature as like one of the best gears of all time, like a lot of that was publicly available in film or videos or whatever. And, you know, he was, he, he didn't just go out there and jump onto that, that peak. Like he put a lot of time and effort into learning those hard skills. And it seemed like he was as aware of the hazard as anybody. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he, he, we, we talked several times in the, in the weeks and months leading up to his accident. And, um, you know, I, I, cause I would bring up the concerns. I mean, I, it's, it's, I, I also knew Andreas very well. I made a, I made a film about Andreas a, a few years before that. And, um, and I, I knew that he was fully comfortable, um, operating on the point of the spear. And I knew that JP was less comfortable in that position. And, and we, we talked about it and, and, um, and JP acknowledged that, you know, he said there, there are certain times when Andreas and I are working together where, where he knows he's going to have to go alone, where they, you know, where I I'll hit my, my barrier and I, I'm not going to go past that point. Unfortunately, I mean, the, the thing that they were doing was not the hardest thing they've done. I mean, they got, they really got unlucky. It was, um, it was a, 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 a tragic event, but not, you know, not, not really predictable what happened. And it's, yeah, tough. Well, rest in peace, JP. Mm -hmm. Um, you were maybe alluded to this a little bit earlier, but do you have any, um, sharp end moments in your own career in the mountains that you would be willing to share with us here? Learnable moments or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, I, I haven't been through a, a crazy situation in the mountains. I've been, I mean, I've been on site for some avalanches. I've, I've, um, kicked off avalanches. Fortunately, I've always been able to ski my way out of them. Um, I've, uh, I, I would say that almost every year of my career, I would have at least like one or two times where I would be in a position and, and be like, I shouldn't be here right now. This is, this is wrong. This feels wrong, you know, and, and often it's a series of circumstances that lead you to that position. Oh, the entrance wasn't where I thought it was. Uh, there's only, you know, eight centimeters of snow on top of this rock slab. I thought this was going to be a snow slope, like something. And then you kind of get yourself in and you can't get out and, and you, you're like, Oh, what am I doing here? This is not, this is not right. Fortunately, I've always, I've always managed to find a way out of whatever predicament I've been in. I haven't had to call SARS. <laughs> That's good, I guess. Um, but I mean, there's been so many, uh, teachable moments over the years. Um, we had an avalanche incident. It, it actually got, it was, uh, we, uh, I was working with forecast ski magazine in Revelstoke with Chris Rubens and, uh, and um noah noah morrison and um we had a, an an avalanche out in uh kokanee bowl i think it was and that we that ended up getting played out as a like it's like a five or six minute thing on youtube i don't know if you've seen that but um was that just last year i was like two years ago it might have just come okay. out last year okay um anyway noah noah landed the cliff and started tomahawking and then the whole big slab pulled and he was gone. And I was actually filming at the time. 
Um, and we knew like, okay, this is big and this is not good. And, and, um, it's, it's wild when, when that happens, like we, our film crew was in a safe spot. We were up on a Ridge kind of looking across, uh, Chris Rubens was at this, at the top of the line, tons of experience, very uh, knowledgeable person in the back country. And, um, it's, it's interesting though, like how time warps when, when, things hit the fan. Like it just, it's, it's wild because we had cameras rolling the whole time. So we actually had time code. Like we knew how long it took. I think it was like 91 seconds was the total time from when the avalanche started to when Chris uncovered his face. And wow, that's a quick response. Yeah. I mean, Chris did everything right there. Everybody that was in the area did everything right. But man, if you had asked me right after, like, how long did that take? I would have said three or four minutes because your mind just goes into this hyperspeed about what to do and like protocols. And I think this is like such a, you know, one of the teachable moments for me through that was how important it is to practice often enough that, that the right things to do become automatic because absolutely yeah the one thing that 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 i think a lot of people don't understand is that when things go sideways so does your mind and you kind of like there's this panic where the thoughts are like everything speeds up like four times as fast and the thoughts are just turning through your head and if you don't have those that training to know like okay calm down assess the scene like you know go through your checklist really um, you can, you can make, make mistakes. And I remember thinking when Noah, when, when the slide happened, um, and Chris was down there and we, there was another crew that was up higher on the Ridge. And my first thought was, why aren't they getting down there to go search? And, it, you know, 15 seconds later, when I like pulled back and pulled my head out of the immediate scene in front of me and looked around, I went, Oh, because this whole bowl could go and, and everybody could be involved. I mean, there was so much hang fire. I mean, only a small section of the bowl had slid. And in the end, I mean, thank goodness that crew who we know who was up there, they had their wits about them enough not to speed into the scene and then create a much bigger problem. So it was, uh, you know, when we, when we sort of debriefed afterward, it was actually like, one of those situations where we actually felt pretty good about how everybody reacted. And Chris was bang on, like he found a route down to Noah as fast as possible, where he didn't have any risk of kicking off anything additional down onto the slope. He looked for, you know, he saw Noah's hand, uh, like a look like a glove lower down in the slide. And he had his beacon out and was zigzagging, but zigzagging fast, aiming kind of for that hand, you know, and waiting for that signal. And like I said, 91 seconds, I think it was. It's incredible. It's a really good, uh, as you say, a good reminder about how important practice is and like good quality practice too. You stick to like a set of steps essentially, because we need that simplicity and that, that repetition in the heat of the moment. For sure. Um, you were talking about your work as a filmer in that instance. And at what point would you say that you kind of transition more into the filming side of things than um, being in front of the camera it's it's been kind of gradual um the filming stuff 
kind of went to a new level in, I think it was 2004, um, where I'd been, you know, I'd done like six years of being in all the ski movies every year and all that stuff. And I, I was starting to hit what looked like the ceiling of being a pro skier, which is back then was 35. Like once you hit 35, it, it, it was over. It was like, it, there was literally, it felt like a ceiling. And so when I was 34 and I saw that coming the next year, I was like, well, I got I better make a backup plan. What do I want to do? And, you know, I've always sort of dabbled in film, whether I was, you know, I, I think my favorite position was to be, was to be the guy skiing because he was having the most fun. But I also liked, you know, taking photos and shooting videos and cutting them together in, in the office in the summer or whatever. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to start a little production company. So I started Switchback Entertainment back then. And in those early years, um, the only thing that I really did was sort of produce whatever trips or films we were going to do. So maybe produce direct. And, and then I would edit in the summer, the rest of, of, of that stuff I would hire out. And I did that until about 2010, 2011 and where I would have, you know, cameramen that worked for me or, or whatever, and, um, or, or hire other people to do other jobs so that I could still be the skier because that was, that was, uh, that's where I still wanted to be. Now that shifted, I think like around 20, probably 2011 was when it shifted and it, it shifted because, um, I got talking to my, my good buddy, Josh Duick, who's a, a Paralympian sit skier from, from Silver Star. And, and we were chatting one day about his story and I was like, man, your story is just so cool. Like, you know, you went from this freestyle skier who broke his back and looked like he would never be able to do anything again. And in six years, you've, you know, you've won Olympic medals and you've, you're doing things on sit skis that no one thought possible. And, and so we came up with an idea to, to make a film about that. And, uh, and that was kind of the first time that I really dug in and got behind the camera and, and did, you know, some in-depth interviews and shot all the B-roll and, and tried to make a real film. And, and that film actually ended up doing very well, which sort of gave me the confidence that, oh, maybe I can do this filmmaking thing for real beyond just, you know, the ski movies and sort of ski promo stuff that I'd been doing. So, um, from that point on that started a shift and, and I would say that, you know, at that point I was maybe like 50% filmmaker, 50% pro skier. And I would say now that I'm like, probably certainly in terms of time, I'm probably 75, 80% filmmaker and, and 20, 25% uh, pro skier getting yourself back in front of the camera just to keep the the dream alive. Well, I mean, when I say that, like I, I would say that a, a lot of the stuff that I do as a pro skier now is less in front of the camera, but more, um, appearances or, or, you know, going out and skiing with groups of people or retailers or, you know, that more that side of it. I mean, yes, I'll, I'll do some stuff on film each year. Sometimes my films, have me in them, which is not my favorite thing, to be honest. Um, it's, it's always weird to be working on both sides on a project that you're in, but, um, but that's sometimes how it works out. Uh, so that, that film is freedom chair. I believe it was called, right? Yeah. I, the I saw chair, that. that yeah. was a really good film. Thank you. I didn't realize that was your first one that was not kind of just directly uh, about producing your own trips. So you did an amazing job on that one. It's a great story. 
Thanks. There's a bit of a narrative element to some of your films that you've done, you know, like you did the story about Andreas Franzen and some really interesting storytelling. It wasn't just like straight up ski porn. What is it that draws you to that kind of storytelling side of the, uh, the filmmaking? Well, I think it's a couple of things. First of all, after doing as many years of ski films as I did, like the ski porn thing starts to feel repetitive. It's fun. You get to go, you know, ski the wildest lines in the world. But, you know, the, the, as you get older and the, the, the sport evolves and the stakes get higher, your desire as a, as a skier, you know, by the time you hit about 40 years old, taking those risks that you needed, that you were willing to take at 23 years old, aren't, that's not really like, <laughs> it's not really where you want your nervous system to be operating all the time. And so there, part of that, you know, and, and also like having a family, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've got kids that are almost grown up now. So my kids have, have evolved. My son was born in 2003 so from that time on, you know, that becomes a factor. Like you, you, you assess, you talk to your wife and you say like, is this what I should be doing for our family? And I made a promise to my wife when our kids were born that I would notch the risk down. Like I would, I would not ski fall and die terrain anymore. That was, that was a, something that I, I, uh, I pulled off, um, the mix. And, and so you, you know, and that's sort of a natural evolution. And then I also, you know, in those early days when we started Solomon free ski TV, to me, there was an opportunity there where ski movies were just ski porn, music, action, move to the next segment, the next place, who's going to be rad, whatever. Nobody was telling that behind the scenes story. And so that's something that I, I saw an opportunity to do. And that was also something that I was interested in. And that has continued to evolve now where I'm actually, uh, you know, spending my days now, I'm actually rehabbing from shoulder surgery right now. So I'm, I'm actually, uh, I can't do much anyway, but I'm, I'm currently in the middle of editing a, a documentary feature film. So, Oh, right on. Are you, are you able to share a bit about what that's about? Or we, we stay tuned for that one. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool story. Um, uh, it's about the first guy to visit every country in the world completely without flying. Um, oh, I think I saw you posted something about that. That that is a fascinating story. It took ten years, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. He thought it was going to take four. It took ten. Um, there's a lot of layers to this story. You know, he's got a girl at home. He's he's. It's been it's been much much more challenging than he ever thought it would be. And he just arrived home two months ago. And so for the last, I've been following his story for four years now. And, uh, for the last year, I've really, it's been, it's been the primary thing I've been working on. I've been following him around the world, sort of at the tail end of that journey, um, to document as much of it as possible so that we could put this film together. Well, fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing that come out on the subject of sort of like narrative films and, um, maybe a segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, there was a film that I saw a little while back, maybe during the late end of the COVID thing. Um, and it was about a, a kid in the sea sky that was experiencing some climate anxiety. And then you ended up skiing with him um, and kind of talking through some tools that he could use to sort of like manage his, his sort of feelings of anxiety about uh, the changing climate and his sort of, you know, seeming 
powerlessness to do anything about it as a, as a young kid. I was wondering if you could uh, first tell us a little bit about that film, but then also talk, uh, sort of use that to segue into talking about POW Canada and some of the work that you've done uh, with them. Yeah. Um, so the film is called Sam and Me. And we, I think it's came out two years ago now, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I get uh, sometimes random messages, emails, letters from, from people all over the place. And, and I received an email uh, from a kid named Sam Tierney, who was at the time 13 years old. And um, he lives in Pemberton. So not too far away from me in Whistler, about a half hour away. I'd never met him before. So I didn't, I didn't know of him at all, but he, um, he sent me a letter saying that, that he was pretty stressed about climate change and he was, you know, it was keeping him up at night and, and he knew that I was uh, kind of a local hero of sorts and, and that I was involved in climate action with, through Protect Our Winters Canada. And he said, you know, do you have any tips for me, anything that I can do to, to help feel better? And, and, and I mean, first of all, getting a letter like that from, from a kid is, is, is heartbreaking, right? Like you, you think like, what have we done? I mean, our kids are having tr- trouble sleeping at night because of the situation we're, we're currently in. But, um, so I reached back out to Sam right away and, and sort of gave him a few, a few tips and, and said, you know, like, let's, let's try to meet up. And we met up at a, a little climate March thing. I think that that was the time when the Fridays for future was, was kind of a thing. And, um, and we got to know each other a bit and it turns out his mom's actually an avalanche professional, uh, Aaron Tierney. Um, and, and it turns out Aaron and I knew each other from way, way back when, when she used to be a patroller on Blackcomb, And, and so we started putting the pieces together and, and then eventually, you know, we were, we were sort of pitching Solomon on some new ideas and they wanted a, an eco story. And I said, well, I've been talking to this kid and trying to help him. And they're like, well, that, that sounds pretty cool. So, um, so yeah, so we, we wrote up sort of a, an idea for a film and I ran it by Sam and his family and they were, they were in and, and, you know, when the winter started that year, we started filming and and the idea was that Sam and I would, would try to meet up once a week and ski together one day a week, all season long. And we would work on skiing and we would just talk about stuff, you know, kind of big brother style and, and, um, and, and I would try to help him work through. And, and, you know, part of that was to, you know, we taught him how to do his three, first 360. And we, we, you know, we, I, I showed him some of the signs of climate change that we see in our local mountains and, and, you know, like some examples of, of, of things that are happening and what we, we can maybe do about it. And, and sort of, I guess I won't get, I'll try not to give away the end of the film, but, but it culminates in, in some, some, you know, triumph for Sam in the end. And he, he feels a lot better by the end of the season and, and things, you know, things improve. And I, and I still, I still keep in touch with Sam and he's doing, he's doing much better, which is nice to see. That's awesome. As you know, as a dad, much like yourself, like it's a familiar thing with kids uh, having a hard time kind of placing that, that sort of low level stress about climate change and they hear about it at school and varying degrees depending on what sort of age they're at so it's super awesome that a you're able to do something for an individual kid but i think also for a lot of kids because people can watch that and um it's been on my radar to show that to my kids now that they're kind of a little bit older so yeah i will make sure that the link to that is in the show notes because that's something that i think everybody should see 
Um, so talk, let's talk about some of those changes that you've seen in, in the mountainous landscape around you. Like I've heard you talk specifically about how much the Horseman Glacier has changed. Um, do you mind kind of sharing a bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the Horseman Glacier is where I sort of discovered global warming and, and climate change. I, I used to um, work and then eventually uh, was a partner in one of the ski camps up there, which is now known as Momentum, actually still operating um, to, to this day. Um, but you know, as I was sort of the operations manager for, for the camp. And, and so I had a really intimate relationship with that glacier. I knew where every rock was. I knew, you know, where we had to watch out on a hot day for rock emerging and we had to cover it with a white tarp or whatever. And so when you spend so much time, you know, on something like that, something as resilient as a glacier, and you see it change rapidly, it really wakes you up. And I mean, this was all starting to happen around the same time when, when global warming was becoming a bigger topic in the, it, through the 90s and into the early 2000s. And, and for me, not only was I seeing that change each year, but I was seeing it accelerating and, and changing more and getting worse. And, um, you know, I, I, I was probably like a lot of people, I was expecting the government to do something about climate change. I'm not an activist person. Like it's not really in my blood or in my family or I'm, but I'm a concerned person. You know, I, I'm, I'm an observant person and I notice things that are happening around me. And to me, that was so obvious. And so over time I started to speak out more and more about, um, about, global warming and, and climate change as I saw it, not only in my backyard, but I started to notice it around uh, other mountain regions of the world. You know, I'd go to, to, to France to do work with Solomon. I'd head over to Chamonix and look at the Mer de Glace and just be, you know, stunned at what's happened to that in, in just 20 years. It's, it's unbelievable and much more dramatic looking than, than the Horseman Glacier where you have to have some knowledge of what it looked like before, but in the Merida glass, it's like bathtub rigs, you know, you can see where that ice used to be. And, and it's, it's quite shocking. So, um, I, I, you know, I would sort of speak up about climate over those years. And then eventually I just had a, a chance encounter with, um, the, the folks from POW in the U S at a film festival. And we got talking and they said, you know, we'd be, be great to have you as an ambassador. So I, I'd been a fan of what they were doing down there with Jeremy Jones and that whole crew. And, um, I, I started, uh, you know, working with them and, and sharing their data and their, their materials and, and also going to their, their summits where they would, you know, bring in scientists to talk to us and, and give us sort of the latest data and latest data. And then also what, you know, what we could do about it. And I think it was a couple of years into that where, there was a few of us Canadians that were working with Powell in the U.S. and we were like, you know, we really need this in Canada too. And so we we came home and started scheming on on how we could get it going in Canada and enter a guy named Dave Erb who who happened to reach out right as we were talking about all this and has sort of had the know-how of how to get a nonprofit off the ground in Canada. And next thing you know, we we got Powell Canada going and that was about six years ago now, I think. So now it looks like you're up to somewhere around 32,000 members now. Um, it's a, a decent sized voice, you know, that's like a, 
an average mid-sized town in BC, really, when you think about it. So uh, can you talk a bit about some of the stuff that POW is working on and, and how you see POW kind of uh, moving forward here? Yeah, so the, I'd say the biggest thing I've learned through working with POW is that we can accomplish far more collectively than we can as individuals. I mean, we, we can we can sit in our homes and recycle and and try to bike to work instead of drive our cars. But if we want to make the change that we need on the scale that we need in the time frame that we have, which is shrinking by the day, literally, um, we need big collective action, and and it's that clear. And 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 um, as a group, as a collective, you know, we've been going to Ottawa each year where we meet with ministers and, and the decision makers and sort of give them our case. And, and, you know, if I, if I had a takeaway from those experiences, I would say that politicians, they're really a reflection of, of the electorate. I mean, they, they represent the people because if enough people are saying we need to do something about climate change, we've got to scale down fossil fuels as fast as possible. They'll do it. But we need those numbers. And so, you know, with POW, what we're trying to do is, is you know, we'll, we'll get in, we have local chapters and we'll kind of get into some local action too. But really what we need is the numbers. We want to go to Ottawa and say, we've got 100,000, we've got 250,000, we've got 500,000 people. You start getting into numbers like that and all of a sudden you can actually make real change. And the politicians will be willing to make, you know, take bolder action, knowing that there's this group of 500,000 people going, yeah, do that. And we've got your back, you know? So we're trying to, to, to build this group as big as possible so that we can have the most leverage. And, you know, it, the, the easiest way to sort of understand this is, is if you look at us politics, um, and, and the hold that the NRA has over the gun movement. I mean, the U S gun violence is, is insane Yet um, the, the, the politicians don't do anything about it because the NRA as a voting block is so powerful that they don't want to piss them off. And so, you know, it, gun, gun you know, reform seems obvious down there, yet it doesn't happen because of this group sort of blocking the way. Well, what we want to do is flip the switch and say like, We've got this group of people who are seeing what's happening. I mean, the outdoors people, people like us, we're the most likely to be affected or at least to see the effects of climate change. So let's all get together and use one voice to to try and get the government to do the right things. So for people that are uh, not currently members that are, you know, outdoor enthusiasts, whether they be in the winter outdoor world or or not, um, what what do you recommend that people do? become a member of POW? Like what's the first step there? Do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, 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 the biggest thing that you can do is actually the easiest thing to do, which is to become a member of POW. Um, I mean, numbers, numbers talk, like I just said. Uh, so the more members we can get, the better it's free to sign up. Um, you know, and then if people want to get more involved, that's great. Um, you know, we are, the, the, the sad part is we're running out of time. Um, you know, the latest climate data is, is, is pretty sobering and we've got to make some big moves and we've got to make them soon. So the more that people can get involved in collective actions, actions that, that can move at scale, um, whether that's lobbying the government, voting the right way, um, uh, supporting, you know, sustainable, 
energy and sustainable transitions to, to, to newer technologies. I mean, all of these things help. I think the worst thing you can do is probably sit at home and, and try not to do anything because ultimately we have to do more in order to, to get to the place that we have to be. So yeah, get involved for sure. We need, we need everyone. So in light of what we've been talking about here and, you know, changing backcountry and the, the need to make changes, you know, we're seeing plenty of changes in the ski industry. Like, you know, it seems like most years you hear of a new low elevation European ski resort that's not going to be open anymore. And yet backcountry skiing is booming worldwide. And obviously people are super passionate about these cold, snowy places. So where do you see skiing in, you know, 10 or 15 years? Well, I, th- I think skiing's got some challenging conditions ahead for sure. Um, we'll see what's, what's happening. We're going into a, an El Nino cycle right now. We haven't been in one for, for sheesh, like 2016, I think was the last time we came, we came out of one as far as I know. So, um, it's going to be interesting. And I, and I think that, that, uh, you know, as I look forward, I I've become, much more of a, an opportunist I'll say. So if, if conditions are good, uh, I'll kind of try, if I can, I'll drop what I'm doing and I'll, I'll go ski for a few days. And if conditions are bad, then I'll pick up that work that maybe I pushed aside. And I think, I think to a certain degree, we're going to have to, 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 to view it that way. I think the, the tough parts of the season are probably going to become tougher and, and become longer. Um, and I, it's not saying that snow is going to go away, but I think it's just going to get weird. And it's been weird and getting weirder, I feel like. I mean, we see that in our snowpacks with these persistent weak layers that that come in because of some event that happens early in the season that's sort of not normal or whatever. You know, you hear of uh, like Colorado getting rain in December, things like that. Like that's that's really strange, strange stuff. So... I think we have to become adaptable. We have to, uh, we have to find a way to, to, to deal with, with everything ahead and be, and be flexible and be willing to, you know, to maybe postpone that backcountry trip if the conditions aren't right, or if, if the conditions are especially sketchy. And, and, and like I said, that's sort of my take on it is I I've tried to be as flexible as possible so that I, I don't force myself into a situation that, that that's maybe unsafe or, or it doesn't make sense. And then in terms of the long term, like, do you see, you know, ski resorts going more to mountain biking um, to kind of keep the doors open or um, you know, we have, it's kind of funny, like you say, things are getting weird. We see mammoth staying open until pretty much August this past year. And, and yet they, they just came out of a pretty record breaking drought in California. So, uh, expect the unexpected, maybe the moral of the story here. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, like I said, I think we have to be, we have to be adaptable and we have to be opportunists. You know, you see, you see <laughs> if it's snowing a lot this week, well, take advantage of it. And, and, you know, and it's, it's certainly changed the way that I, I have to be, have my wits about me more in the backcountry than ever before. I mean, the historically the glaciers along the coast mountains here have have been pretty solid. You know, there's crevasses usually happen where there's a breakover or some obvious feature that's that's causing a glacier to break. But 
but more or less, if you're on the snow fields or whatever, it's been relatively safe. Um, but that's something that's really changed, especially in the last five years as the crevasses are starting to open everywhere. So it's, it has, you know, forced me to adjust the way that I go into the backcountry. Like I would, before a couple of years ago, I would never have brought a rope with me if I went out into the spearhead. And now I won't go past Decker mountain without a rope. So these are, these are things that, that have, have shifted. And, and, and I think we have to adapt. I, I don't, you know, even if we, we reduce carbon emissions to zero, uh, next month and, and the world's a perfect place, there's still going to be some latency in the system that we have to get through. So adaptation is going to be key. Yeah, true enough. Well, thanks for your perspective on it. You've, you're obviously somebody that's put some time into, uh, researching it and, um, through the advocacy work with, uh, POW Canada, a lot of that information's available to the general public. So thanks. Thanks for your perspective. Um, and thanks for your time, uh, Mike, I really appreciate it. It's been a super interesting conversation and, uh, yeah, look forward to seeing what the winter brings for all of us. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was a great conversation with Mike Douglas. Thank you, Mike, for joining me. And thank you all for listening. As someone who grew up skiing on Vancouver Island in the 90s and has chased powder snow ever since, I have seen the influence of Mike Douglas and the new Canadian Air Force all around me. The pocket rocket ski was a staple for backcountry skiers in the mid to late 2000s, and the legacy of his tricks and films lives on in the young groms shredding our local hills to this day. I also appreciated Mike's insights into the landscape level changes that he has observed in the mountains. We're all here because we love the cold snowy places. Check out protectourwinters.ca or protectourwinters.org to learn more about the advocacy work being done by fellow snow loving people. This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at www.theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find our past episodes. You can also reach out at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, tell a friend and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Those five star reviews really actually help spread the show. If you want to help support the podcast, there's a new donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Thank you to everyone who has supported the show so far. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Music for this episode was written and performed by friend of the podcast, Gravy. Thanks, Gravy, for the tunes. You can hear more of Gravy's tunes at gravy.tunes on Instagram and find his album on Bandcamp. If you want to see Gravy shred deep pow, then check out his edits on Instagram or YouTube. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Thanks, Wes. Are you in need of some new gloves, goggles, or socks? Go check out Gordini.com and use the code THEAVALANCHEHOUR10 to get 10% off and free shipping on your next order. Well, until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.